Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors. Take a walk and make a podcast. I have a frog frog in my throat, so it's fine. Let's go. This is Yolando, <laughs> and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. But before we talk about any of that, I would just like the record to show that we were setting up for this podcast, and Yolando was checking and checking and checking his own mic, and then he was like, all right, are you ready? And I was like, hey, are you not even going to check my mic? Does my voice just not matter at all? And here we are. Because yours is usually so perfect and so yeah no one's buying that no one is buying that so anyway we're we are on the break on the brink of a two-week <laughs> break um for i'm, I'm going to take a week off and yolanda's going to take a week off and so we're a little loopy um maybe the uh, rest of maybe everyone else is too um so we're gonna i don't know throw up some old sermons in the next couple of weeks just in case you can't 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 make it without our voices um but we assure you that you can make it without our voices and then we will be back full of them and vigor in two weeks but i mean we're here now so what's astonishing you well our church session met last night Uh, okay tell okay for those of you who don't know um the local uh, Presbyterian Church, a local Presbyterian church, is governed by a board of elders. We call that the session, and our session, um, which has six elders, met last night via Zoom. We've been meeting over Zoom um, since the pandemic, and um, one of the things I noticed last night, and I paused the meeting just to highlight it, um, is that we have changed the way we do business. And I I don't know if it has anything to do with the pandemic, uh, and it's not simply um, the fact that we're meeting over Zoom. When I first arrived at the church six, seven years ago, we would meet starting no, at No, it was not six years ago. Yeah, so, uh, seven years ago. Yeah, it's been, it's been a minute. Wow. Yeah. Okay. No, sorry. you're Carry just surprised on. that <laughs> I haven't been fired. <laughs> I am not before. surprised you haven't been fired. I'm slightly surprised that you have not been, as is often the case. People come to Yolando and they court him and they woo him. And so he Lies. gets these opportunities. That, that is not a lie. Woo. And they woo him. <laughs> you are wooed. And um, and he just gets different opportunities. And and I think in the past, um, those opportunities have come providentially at a point where, you know, the congregations he's been serving have just sort of said, actually, we're not interested in uh, transformation and we're not interested in um, paying the price you have to pay to actually vitally engage the neighborhood um, with the hope of Jesus. And so so you move. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, on the other hand, <laughs> stay. I'm planted. I'm rooted. Um, and I'm also unwooed. So it's fine. Well, I've served a lot of congregations. And sometimes, you know, they kindly show you the door. And that's, that's part no of it. No one has ever showed you the door. Yes. You oh, have yes. shown yourself the door. No, I, I had a congregation once in a congregational meeting. Someone stood up and said, we don't like you. 
and no one said anything in defense. And that was that was that was a, a long time ago. Like that was before I knew you. That was in Memphis, that was be- right? That was yeah. That was before. I, I mean, not you. that you should be marking eras in your life by <laughs> whether or not you knew me in them, but I'm just saying. In BK, the time BK and BK a. and PK, <laughs> post Kate after AK. AK. I just um. I'm just pointing out that since you've been on this transformation journey, you have stepped yes. away from churches yes. when, yes. yes. I'm also want to just say, lest there be any confusion, I don't want to be wooed. I'm very happy at the Grove. I don't want to go anywhere. This is my dream church. But we weren't talking about me for once. We so let's go back yes. to talking about you. Sorry. Uh, so when I arrived at Dorita Church six, seven years ago, um, and the board would meet, we would start at 630 End maybe 10, 30, 11 o'clock oh. that night. Just long meetings, long discussions about things that often really, in the grand scheme of things, didn't matter. We, we just had a way of getting bogged down in minor things. And um, not by any plan that I put into place. It's it, so much just by the grace, I mean, it's just all by the grace of God that we have the elders that we have, that we conduct the same amount of business in an hour and a half. And not only do we conduct the business, uh, I am astonished about the way we conduct the business in a time that's so filled with loss and grief and pain when other congregations are really tempted to um, turn on each other, look to assign blame. I mean, we have in our presbytery that is our governing body that oversees an area of congregations. Um, our, our governing body, the Presbytery of Charlotte, has a committee that works with churches in conflict. And my understanding is that they are they're fairly busy these days because there's a fair amount of conflict in our congregations. Um, and I am astonished that the elders of Dorita Church seem to have this mindset of, okay, we are in a very difficult season. And as we look around, it's it's nobody's fault or everybody's fault. Like we are to blame if anyone is to blame. And uh, we are in this together. And so uh, we often tackle some very difficult issues and we stay on the issue. And we have, uh, in terms of thinking, uh, uh, pretty diverse session it's it there's it's not uh, a meeting of of of, you know two hours of group think we really discuss things but we do it in a way that is not just respectful but we're we're seeking to discern the mind of christ Mm -hmm. and i think that's the real shift is that we have come to the place where we realize oh this isn't our church Mm -hmm. and and we we cannot do this um by our own strength where we're, none of us is smart enough to figure this thing out in in this season and if we don't discern what christ wants for christ's own church then we're we're, we're sunk and mm-hmm. so there is a deep humility uh among the elders that is beautiful and wonderful and um makes these uh quote, business meetings, really a, a, a spiritual experience and a spiritual work. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's so interesting, even, um, like, I think about 
several years ago at the Grove, we studied First Peter together, and I, I, which is, I mean, I don't know about you, but it's not like the place I turn to in Scripture for, um, but it's so interesting because um, he was writing to a group of Christians who were being really severely persecuted unto death, and um, it's such a joyful letter because, um, you know, the the un, the common culture, the understanding, the faith of the community is, hey, what matters most and what has true value is the life we have at Jesus. And no matter what happens, that is not at stake. So Peter can say to them, you know, when you are arrested, um, when you are literally being led off in chains to be killed, always be ready to give an account for the hope that is within you. And I think, you know, sort of that, and this is what, like this language of surrender, which I think has been, we, has been used poorly or not at all. Or in a very limited way. It's usually used most often when I hear it, um, only in terms of conversion and a, a conversion right. experience. I mean, and I would say that in our tradition, our common tradition, the Presbyterian branch of the vine, um, it's not used at all. Mm. So, um, so we sort of overhear other people using language of surrender, and we think like, well, that's a little emotional and embarrassing, isn't it? Um, and, and if we, you know, and when we think about it, it would be yes, this moment of the one time you choose Jesus, and then you know, you move on the rest of your life decently and in order. And, um, but I think, you know, the gift of that core um, truth in the Christian tradition is that, you know, we tend to think of surrender as this very negative and sacrificial um, test um, payment that we have to make um, in order to receive salvation from Jesus. And what we don't understand is that um, the, I think that surrender is a really joyful thing, that when we have this understanding that life is going to work out in a certain way for us or that God should be showing up in certain ways for us in our life, then we are constantly walking around, you know, trying to control and trying to hold on and trying to sort of negotiate or navigate or make things happen for ourselves. That when you have an understanding of Jesus as abundantly and outrageously good to us, um, and when you have an understanding of the cross as not a one and done, but as a a an alternative, a narrow way of not avoiding but engaging the deepest pain and brokenness and suffering of the world, right? Because I think, you know, the common expression of Christianity is just be good and God will protect you and make sure nothing really bad happens to you. And when you look at the gospel and say like, okay, well, that's that's really kind of a funny takeaway from a story about the Son of God who is perfectly faithful, and that leads him towards a cross, not, you know, towards Jerusalem. Um, so if we say, like, well, maybe there's something else there. Maybe this is not a story about fire insurance, but maybe it's a story about how 
even and maybe even especially when not that we seek them out, but when we find faithfulness to Jesus leads us into the valley of the shadow of death or of evil, that even there we discover that God is good. And so, you know, we tend to think like, well, if I love Jesus, that's going to mean I get the good life and the good life is a happy marriage and healthy kids and a good safe home and a job security and retirement account and good health and, you know, all of these things that are not I mean, we think, well, what else could abundant life mean? And Jesus says, come and see, right? And it's a kind of abundant life that when you're sitting in a prison cell facing physical death, that you are not pretending, but actually experiencing a level of life and goodness and hope in Jesus that you were saying, like, I am not afraid because what I have is not corruptible by death. And then, you know, when you are experiencing what the world says is the worst that could happen to a person and you have authentic joy and hope and you're not afraid, people are like, well, what in the world? Like, you know, and Peter's saying like, get ready to tell people why you're not cowering in fear because you won't be. And, um, and the gifts that we have in this life, which are good, and there's nothing wrong with um, pursuing them in a way that honors Jesus, but pursuing them knowing that they are the gifts, they are not God. And that will, anyway. So I um, I just think, sorry, the detour back to session is, uh, I think we, my, certainly my experience up until the Lord led us on this transformation journey here is that session meetings were just hugely anxious experiences because we were trying to protect um, or maintain this good thing that we had from God and other people around the table were either allies or enemies, right? And it's just the struggle of like, how am I going to make sure that nothing bad happens to this? And how am I going to make sure that I get what God surely has for me? As opposed to, you know, having that sort of mindset of like, look, I'm here fully surrendered to how God wants to use me individually and how God wants to use this community collectively. And I know that really all things are on the table and that what I want is for God's will to be done then I know that God's grace will give me the capacity to be faithful in whatever circumstances lie ahead of me. And that just gives me the freedom to look around the table and see, well, the people around me are not the problem, um, that we might have a problem, but any problem we have is not large enough to separate us from Jesus. It's not going to make Jesus stop loving us. And it doesn't have the power in itself to make us stop loving each other or our neighbors. And that's what we're here to do. And so then, you know, the problem really can become a cross that can be leveraged to show the glory of God. And it is just a different mindset when you're just saying like, I have expectations about the future, but I recognize that I'm surrendering those to King Jesus. And so if that's not the way the future works out, I have this joyful hope that it will still be good, even if it's a huge surprise, even if it involves loss and sacrifice and suffering. What the cross teaches me is when it looks like it's over, it's not over. 
Yeah, I think you could summarize our shift uh, in terms of uh, the, 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 the change in two questions. Um, we used to ask, how can we keep our church going? Mm-hmm. That would be the primary question um, in front of elders, whatever the issue we were talking about. And now the question is, how can we be faithful to what Jesus wants? Mm-hmm. I think the second shift in questions probably has to do more with me than with the elders. Because as we're having this conversation, I'm thinking, yeah, I used to approach those meetings with the mindset of how can I convince them to right. do this thing that I feel like Jesus wants us to right, do, right? Right, right. Now it's more, okay, how can we discern? How can I help them discern together? <laughs> help us discern together. Right, or how can they help Christ, me discern yes, what, what yeah. Christ wants? And, and right. that shift, those, the, uh, a change in those two questions, that, that means everything. Right, and because I also think it's, um, oh, who is it that said the desire to please God does in fact please God. Like I believe the desire to please God does in fact please God. Uh, there's a Thomas quote Merton. By, well, there's a uh, quote from Søren Kierkegaard, the um, what 16th century Danish philosopher who said, um, purity of heart is to will the will of God. Because mm-hmm. I think when you come to the table and say like, look, what we're here to do is to joyfully join into what God is doing in the world. And we're under no illusions about our metaphysical size. Like we're small people and we have limited sight and understanding and faith. And all we can do is the best that we can do. And when glorious things happen, they'll happen because of the glory of God. And when, you know, things that are not glorious happen they're not stronger than the glory of God. So there's just this freedom of like, hey, of like, you know, Peter writing to those that little tiny church who must have felt like, oh my gosh, like how are we going to literally survive? And if we do survive, how are we going to share the gospel? And, you know, Peter's like, you don't need to, you just need to enjoy the gift of love and life that God has given you. And to know that salvation has been accomplished. And, and that's not to like dismiss how deeply we care about our communities, but I do think it's to put that caring in right context, right? So it's good to cherish the communities that God has given us, but to remember that those are gifts, not the, not God who we worship. And so like ultimately the context is the, the resurrected Lord. And so we ought to be able to like, look at situations with deep uncertainty and real ambiguity and just say like, you know, I don't understand, but I have the peace that passes understanding and I'm going to do my best. And what else can I do? Um, I Maybe what else I can do is not turn on the people around me because I think when we are feeling uncomfortable feelings like um, doubt or fear or disorientation or discomfort, the most comfortable, uncomfortable feeling for most people is anger. And so that's why it all, you know, grief comes out as anger. Despair comes out as anger. Depression comes out as anger. Uncertainty comes out as anger. And to just sort of recognize, like, no one here is my enemy. Um, And I can say what I believe to be true. And I can say 
what I believe to be false. And then if things don't, quote, go my way, I can receive that in the context of it's still possible that God is sovereign, right? So I am, yeah, I think that's really, that's really beautiful. It's, I mean, um, I think if you're a pastor leading a church through a season of deep change, you have to be able to find peace in your surrender and in the sovereignty of God. And I think, you know, the freedom of surrender is realizing like, yeah, you actually do have a very limited capacity to change things. And either the Holy Spirit is going to show up and do what only the Holy Spirit can do in a way that you expect and recognize or not. But the Holy Spirit doesn't work for you. And either way, you still have the freedom to choose to be faithful. Last yeah. night, um, as we started our meeting, our uh, devotion was this uh, obscure vision from um, the book of Zechariah and uh, chapter four. And Zechariah has this vision of um, a golden lampstand with seven mm -hmm. lights. And on both sides of the lampstand, there's, uh, there's an olive tree. And there are these, and there's a bowl at the top of, uh, of the lampstand, and the olive trees are connected to the uh, lamp. And um, and it's just it's it's a weird vision. There are all kinds of interpretations, but uh, the the simplest is that of course the number seven in the Bible represents completion or perfection, and uh, lamp the lampstand uh, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, especially the Book of Revelation, represents the the presence of the Spirit, and then the olive tree you get oil. Um, Oil is a symbol for the Holy Spirit. Uh, we talk about the anointing of the Spirit. And so the olive trees are, are feeding into this lamp. And so really it's a vision of the, the, the fullness, the full presence of the Holy Spirit. And so this vision is given to um, Zechariah for um, the, the governor of Judah, um, Zerubbabel. And this is after the people have returned from Babylon. Uh, they've been in exile. And the city of Jerusalem is in ruins, and they're trying to rebuild. Mm -hmm. And it, it, they're, they're having a terrible go of it. Um, the, there's, there are, uh, there, there's an enemy uh, around them that's trying to prevent them from rebuilding. The work is difficult. It gets stalled for 16 years. I mean, they're just having a horrible time. And so the prophet has this vision for um, the governor, Zerubbabel. And at the very end of the reading, the prophet says, for it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says mm -hmm. the Lord. And this is for Zerubbabel. Yeah, because I think a lot of times we get overwhelmed and really bitter and burnt out because we're trying to do this work in our own strength and in our own wisdom and by our own power. And, you know, I think this will seem like a duh statement to the non-Presbyterian, non <laughs> denominational listeners we have, but we are spiritual communities. Mm -hmm. That's what we are. So we, if we are not serious and aware that we are fueled by the spirit of God, like what are we doing? Yeah. So, um, cause I also think I'm learning in this season of my own growth, um, just to look underneath the problem and look underneath the situation and remember that 
ultimately the ministry we do and the decisions that we make are expressions of who we are becoming in Christ. And so ultimately as a pastor, my job is not to control or manipulate what those ministries are um, or which decisions are made, but to look a level underneath it and say, hey, a difficult conversation, a season of discomfort, a healthy conflict, these things are all integral to spiritual growth and transformation of the people in the communities. And so, you know, I think I came into ministry just, you know, you just want everyone to like you and you want to love people. (coughs) And you perceive that to be making them feel good. And sometimes being able to sit around a table and say, well, I don't feel good right now. And other people around the table don't feel good right now, but that doesn't mean that something good isn't happening. And sometimes to be able to have conversations with people that do not cause harm, but do cause pain and being willing to say, to do the kind of sort of ego death work of saying, it is less important to me that you think I'm faithful and more important to me that I am faithful. And sometimes being faithful means for lots of reasons that you don't look faithful or are perceived as unfaithful by certain people, not just outside the community, but in the community. So, um, but yeah, I think I'm just learning that session meetings are not obstacle courses to be mastered, but to say, look, everything that we are doing is an opportunity for us. And I very much include me in that statement to um, experience the presence and the transformative power of the Holy Spirit. And I need to be, I need to be curious about that. Like, Oh, things aren't going in the way I expected that might not feel good, but also deeper what's happening here and what felt needs are being expressed and how, what does it look like to be faithful, not to what I think people should be, you know, but to be faithful to people here and now. Um, So that's, all very very good so what's astonishing you um um what is astonishing me so this past sunday we had a really beautiful um worship service um we had some kids coming home from summer camp we just finished up a week of vacation bible school here and um we sent a lot of youth to um conferences this summer and um, I, I just, they, they were supposed to do some sharing last week and then um, some of them came home with COVID, womp womp, oh, but no. everyone's fine and recovered. And um, so the young people were coming to um, just bear witness and testify about their experiences when they were at these conferences. And I just um, am so grateful for a congregation that, invests resources in young people um, and in and I mean their parents obviously are investing resources in them coming but these these experiences are expensive and um, I think 
you know, they're, they're sort of set up, especially in the Presbyterian camp, uh, on the expectation that the families who are there for are sort of middle class families who can swing a $500 fee. And um, that's a problematic expectation. But I'm really grateful to serve a congregation that's really committed to saying, hey, we need all of our young people to do this or none of our young people to do this, right? And we're going to make sure that um, we ask parents, families to contribute a very reasonable and doable amount of money and then say to people, hey, if you can give more, great. But and And also that we do this not just for the kids that a church would traditionally label as our kids, but that we um, throw the gate open wide and bring other kids in, um, other young people in. And that's just really important to me because I, you know, I didn't come up in a Christian family. And so it was a church that wasn't too inwardly focused or too busy doing other things to invest resources into welcoming and discipling and equipping um, a kid who wasn't from one of their families. And so I'm just so grateful that this community sees that we might skimp on replacing fraying carpet, but we're going to invest heavily in giving these experiences to our young people and just listening to them talk you know, there's just something really unique about these adolescent years and the kind of identity formation that's going on during that time that just giving kids, you know, five days or a week away in a kind of set apart place where you create this alternative culture that should be an all the time culture, but isn't, you know, and um, a place of belonging and joy and fun and freedom and unconditional positive regard and a place where kids are just every day is wrapped in stories of faith and testimonies and songs of praise and acts of worship. It's just really transformative. And then to have these young people come back and to sort of say, hey, for this Sunday, you're bringing the word. And the word is not just what you find in scripture and explain to the church. The word is the experiences that you are having coming alive in Christ here and now. And so it just was so beautiful. And and I was so grateful and so grateful to see my own kids get to have those experiences outside of the context of their local church and, you know, with, with their peers. I just was so um, astonished by the, the depth of that gift and how sacrificially the congregation has given to make that happen. Um, and by just what an investment, um, what a return on investment it was to have these young people come back and, and testify and bear witness to the congregation. And we're kind of, we're in a little bit of a um, potpourri worship series right now that we're calling a kingdom legacy. And just, you know, these young people and, and what life lies before them and all the different ways that the Lord might use them. And, you know, they 
may or may not ever trace any of that to the Grove or to an experience they had for a week in the summer. But you can see from your vantage point of being ancient that those kinds of things really make a difference, that they really plant deep seeds. Um, and I also just love and was astonished to think of what it must, I think, feel like for those kids to stand up in front of the congregation and just see love and joy and holy pride beamed back at them, right? Um, and just to see this community of adults um, who who don't have to know them and don't have to love them, but do. And and they're, we're here saying, tell us your story because your story is sacred to us. Like that's just so beautiful and astonishing to me. And I'm so grateful um, for for this church and the culture. Yeah, I love that um, you guys invest in children beyond the congregation mm -hmm. who are not, quote-unquote, members of the church. Um, for so long, the church built its programming and its buildings to serve those within. Like, this this mm -hmm. is for us. Um, we, we built fellowship halls so that we could have potluck dinners. It, it was all about... Of the inward life of the congregation, and and then we turn toward a uh, just a very um, consumeristic model, and so we said to those outside the church, um, "This is what we have to offer you." And so it was easy to begin to see the church as a as a kind of business offering mm -hmm. services instead of a community of people proclaiming and living out a message, the message of the God who so loved the world that God became incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, died on a cross, rose from the dead, and is making all things new. And that's just entirely different than um, that business model of church. We, right. we have something to sell you, which this current generation of young people, they're saying, well, if if that's church, thanks, but no thanks. Right, because what we have to offer the world is ourselves, and what we have to offer the world is our communities. And not, you know, and I think, especially in denominational circles, that's, we look at the worst examples of witnessing or evangelizing, and we say, well, that's all it is, and we don't want any part of that. And so then we end up um, calling tolerance what is actually indifference. Um, and saying like, well, I'm happy to serve in this kind of capacity, but I don't want to be in relationship. And in reality, we are living in an, in an era where people have such, so little community and there are so few healthy communities. And so to be able to say, hey, we want to provide a lot of different ways to walk into this community. And what we want people to know is, we don't see you as objects to be acted upon, but we see that you are fearfully and wonderfully made and you belong to the one who we belong to. And that makes us kin. And we want to find ways um, to be in relationship it, in a way that honors God. And we want to be really curious about how the Holy Spirit might be drawing us together um, and really joyfully ready to cherish any level of authentic connection that we are able to have with one another and with people around us 
who are also one another. We just don't know it yet. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's beautiful. And I, um, I'm really grateful. Um, I'm just really grateful for a congregation with such an expansive vision for who belongs and how, and how we love people and to say, well, if this is what I would do for my kids, then this is what I want to do for my neighbor's kids. And, you know, let me say that that came at a great cost for the Grove. It it Mm -hmm. meant going through a season in which those who, um, they, they couldn't embrace that vision left. Right. Right. And so, you went through a season not only of loss, but of of great vulnerability and uncertainty about the future of the congregation. But out of that emerged a new vision, a, a more compelling vision, a more faithful, I would say, vision. Well, and I just think that part of, you know, what we talk about in, in the church, and it's true, is that we love one another and the love we have within community is, is, is sacred. Um, but that love ought to be big enough to celebrate when the Lord pulls us off in different directions. And I think for a long time, and this is not just in the church, but out of the church too, there's this idea of like, well, if you don't agree with me, then you don't love me. Right. And, <laughs> and so to be able to say like, look, there's a, there's a vision for, for who, who we believe that God is calling us to be here in this congregation. And, and if that's not what the Lord is calling you to, it's faithful for for our paths to diverge and nobody's betraying anybody and nobody's not loving anybody. And like the opportunity to share life in a community for a season is really precious. And it, and it doesn't last forever, no matter who we are or how aligned our calls might be. And so I I think that's the problem is that a lot of congregations are stuck because they're sitting around tables and they deeply love each other. And someone is saying like, well, if you don't, if you don't get in line with my vision for this church, then you don't love me. And that's unfaithful. And to be able to say like, no, I do love you, but I'm discerning something different. And, and what do we do with that difference? But it's not unloving to say, I believe the Lord is calling me to acts. And I believe the Lord is calling me to why. And loving doesn't mean that we have the same call on our life or the same understanding. And frankly, even if the person across the table from you is just completely wrong, it that doesn't mean that we stop loving them. And loving them doesn't mean we pretend to agree with them or, or to, you know, to, to think something is true that we mm-hmm. think is not true. Mm-hmm. So anyway. So you want to talk about uh, what we're thinking about? Yes, and I think we've already been winding up towards it. Um, so as we were getting ready to start this podcast, um, we're at the Grove today, and um, a member of our community, Greg, is around um, serving, doing some work uh, to prepare the space, actually for, for kids, um, in a really generous way. And we were chit-chatting, as we do and um, one of your friends, Jeannie, had asked if we were ever going to take questions. Listener questions. And so <laughs> we, we you know, I just said, you know, Greg, if you, like, what are some things that you would like to hear two pastors talk about? Um, and so I guess that, that means we are sort of opening the door to if anybody would like to hear us 
uh, if there's any particular thing that we talk about often that seems unclear or a particular question that you would like to hear us address or, or something that you've heard us talk about and said, I don't think that tracks and here's why, um, you know, we'd love to have that conversation. Um, but, but Greg was talking about this idea. He said he's been thinking a lot about how people talk about a social contract and the idea that um, people believe that um, there used to be one and now there's not. And all of the um, conflict and divisiveness there is right now because there isn't a social construct contract mm -hmm. anymore, sort of a common understanding of how we treat one another, how we treat one another. Um, and so we, he just said he's interested in that and interested in, you know, seems to him like it would be a really helpful thing if there were a social con contract and what, you know, how can we be a part of making a social contract that is life-giving for people? Um, and, you know, could we talk about that for a little bit? So what was your first? And, and then, of course, we did right there in yeah, real time. And now yeah, we started talking about <laughs> we, it. We've got we got no problem just talking off the top of our heads all the time. Well, my first uh, thought was um, in the number of people I've heard, you know, saying things like, if we could just go back to the days of Leave it to Beaver and, you know, wasn't it all fine back then? It was great and wonderful when children respected their parents and um, there was a certain kind of order in the home, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And whenever I hear people talking like that, um, uh, you know, pause, it wasn't great for everyone, um, uh, namely black people and women. Um, that were um, uh, it, those were not the golden days, um, and so uh, my my thinking is it, you know when we're when we're talking about a, a social contract, it's not about trying to um, rebuild something from the past. It really is about looking forward and asking a question right now: How can we build something um, that is? life affirming um, to all humanity in, in, in this society. And it, it may look like, uh, you know, reaching back to uh, the, the great spiritual traditions represented in this country. Um, there are just some basic truths ab about how you treat other human beings that I think um, uh, are found in, in all spiritual traditions. Um, that I can think of, and there may be some exceptions, but I think there's enough there for us to um, look forward in, in building something new in terms of a social contract. But th those were my initial thoughts. How about you? Well, I just think, first of all, um, when we talk about a social contract, what I think about is, okay, well, this is what the Lord was trying to do when he gave the Hebrews the covenant, right? I mean, that's exactly what that was, was a social contract that was all inclusive, that recognized no artificial delineation between sacred and secular and sort of saying the way that we um, conduct business, the way that we use resources, the way that we conduct relationships and the way that we worship and pray um, all of these things 
are sacred unto the Lord. And there's a, a way that we need to go about these human activities that reflects who we know God to be and who God has shown us we were created to be and who God has shown us that our neighbor ontologically is. Um, and so, and, and I, you know, my read of the sort of the grand narrative of scripture is that God pulled the Hebrew people, the chosen people, out of enslavement um, as a pure expression of gracious chosenness and that they were chosen to show the entire world, to bless the entire world. That's this language about being salt and light. Um, They were put in the promised land so that they would be um, kind of a lamp on a lampstand showing the world how to live in, in a non-transactional community, how to live in a community that doesn't see other humans as commodities. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the Israelites r- really, as, as people of faith continue to do, misunderstood their chosenness, that their chosenness was a, an expression of superiority. They, they misunderstood their particular and peculiar relationship with God as a, as a sign of superiority. I mean, to the point that they who were enslaved began to enslave others once they um, had power and security in the land of Canaan. So it is, you know, because I believe that we as humans are fallen, (laughs) you know, there's just something essentially marred in our understanding of how to receive good gifts from God, not as a sign of who we are, but as a sign of who God is. And to understand that the goodness that we receive from God is the kind of goodness that God created all humanity to receive. And so um, when we are doing good to our neighbors, that is um, the only form of reciprocation towards God that exists in the world. And so um, I think that, you know, that idea of a social contract is actually a a modern expression of a really deep biblical ideal. And I think two things for, for people who are like many people who are saying like, how come this doesn't exist anymore is a, I just think it's really, really important to see and grieve not that everyone that's come before us is garbage. I'm not saying that. Not that nothing that was ever done on the face of the earth has been without honor or value. I'm not saying that. But the way we remember our stories, particularly particularly as white Americans, is not just untrue, but unbiblical. Because one of the things that's so remarkable about um, the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament is that the people of faith made a point of remembering the the wholeness of their stories. Even the embarrassing ones. Especially the times that they were deeply unfaithful. They did not bury those stories because they understood that they were they were sacred, that they were generative, um, that the only way that we could learn um, to be more faithful was to remember the stories of the times that we were less faithful. So when I want to um, 
tell, learn and tell the stories of the past of America differently. It's not because I hate the people who came before me or because I think that they're worthless or, or because I hate America or because I believe God hasn't, you know, loved and blessed this country. It's none of that. It's, it's one reason I want to do it is because scripture teaches me that it's important to remember those stories and that all sacred stories are not the stories that make you feel good about yourself or your ancestors. Um, and I think it's really important for us to be able to recognize that we are humans, like all of the humans who have come before us and all of the humans who are currently around us. And so we have the capacity to take God's good gifts and twist them into weapons. Um, and so we were given a covenant. And I think that people who came to this country, um, some of them really intentionally uh, or authentically believed that they were here to save and civilize people who were already living here. And some of the people were involved in systems that, um, you know, stole and killed and uh, oppressed humans in ways that were every bit as brutal and barbaric and systematic as the Holocaust. Um, and, and people were involved in those systems and they really believed the toxic theology that somehow that was holy before the Lord. And it wasn't. And so when we are going to talk about recovering a social contract or recovering a covenant, I think it's really important for us to realize how easily seduced we are to do great evil if we think it's in for God and if we think it has a good end. Um, and, and so knowing that, um, I think then we can say, yes, but God did actually show us, oh mortals, what is good. And God has given us a social contract, a covenant to live. And I don't want to, I don't think it's reasonable to go back and take the particularities of the cultural expression that was for um, the Hebrews um, in whatever century BCE that was. But we can look at some of the the layers of meaning behind some of those customs and and think together about what does it look like practically and pragmatically to walk out the values that I see in the Old Testament, which are values of um, radical hospitality and um, mercy and welcoming strangers and limits like a lot of what I see in the covenant, in the sacred covenant of uh, Mosaic covenant is God setting down clear limits of you could do more, you could take more, you could have more. But beyond those limits, it is spiritually unhealthy for you and toxic for your neighbors. And so recovering some of those things. But every time, I think, every time humans have tried to impose or require um, compliance to covenant or to a social contract. It has been disastrous. But every time humans have in these, you know, brief moments of just said, what I'm going to do is think about being as faithful as I possibly can to the values that God has set before me in the covenant and then welcoming people to be a part of that, 
um, that the, those have been transformative seasons. And so I think for us as faith communities to say, hey, we are not in charge of the government and we are not in charge of everyone, but we are ridiculously in charge of what the culture of our community looks like. And we can make the Christ honoring, honoring choice of being radically inclusive. And what does that look like? Um, and to see our communities as a place that resources and regenerates people to send them out into the world, not to impose that social contract on others, but to live it out, to live out covenant towards others, whether we perceive them to be insiders or outsiders, to say, I am inside this covenant with God. And so there is a way that God asks me to be faithful to you, whoever you are, no matter what you're giving to me. And I'm going to seek to be faithful to God in that way. And, you know, that's post death of Jesus when the church had like 30 people and two shekels. It was powerless, but it that was the most transformative and productive season of growth for the church. And when when the church, you know, post Constantine began to have power and authority and institutions, that's really, I, I think, was when we ironically and counterintuitively lost in so many ways the power of the gospel to transform to transform people. Yeah, because the thinking among so many Christians today is that if we're going to have that renewed social contract, that means we have to take over the government and impose upon everyone in the society instead of what you've just suggested, um, uh, taking responsibility for how I live out the covenant. And you referenced a moment ago um, Micah 6, 8, uh, God mm -hmm. has shown you a mortal what is good, what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And I, I, I really struggle these days with the way um, Christians are perceived and in, in actuality how we walk with God because there's not a lot of humility. It's very, it seems to be very militant, like we must take over we must have power we must impose um uh, a, a kind of uh, well a, a christian nationalism right. and uh, that is um that that is not in line with the gospel and as a matter of fact when constantine became emperor in the year whatever whatever uh and christianity became the official religion of the empire it was then you get um, certain Christians who had this deep, deep longing for because um, they, they could they could see they could feel the shift of of wealth and power coming into the church. It's then you get certain Christians going out into the desert right. to live a monastic life because they knew like this isn't it. Right. Because I think what we misunderstand, I mean, we just have a very colonial understanding. Uh, that is the context, context through which we see Christianity. So we think of it as like, okay, we have this superior knowledge and culture and values, and we need to go out and civilize all the other people. We need to, whatever, sacramentalize all the other places. And, you know, Paul talks about being more than conquerors, and that means we are called to do something more than conquer our enemies. We are not conquerors. Um, we, we are given 
the power of grace to fully surrender ourselves to God, not to force other people to surrender themselves to us. And we are not God proxies. We are a, we are given the power of grace and we pick up our cross so that we can say, Lord, wherever you send me into this world, give me the supernatural power to be faithful to you in a way that will maybe appear radical to the world, not in a way, not radically um, enriching myself or empowering myself, but radically loving and laying down my life for the sake of my neighbor who might also be my enemy. And that I, I just think we we have Jesus is the model. Jesus is yeah, the model. Jesus' way of being faithful to his father was surrender. Was surrender and it drew sinners. Right. That that right. was a, a criticism the Pharisees levied against Jesus. You're always eating with tax collectors and sinners. Um, and it was the religious folks who had a problem with Jesus. And we are the opposite. We we want to win over the religious folks and criticize, condemn the sinners. Right. And I would say, like, just not for nothing. I mean, we're two pastors talking about religious folks. Like, obviously, we are religious we folks. Are, we we so are not, them. <laughs> yes. We, they are, we us. are the folks. I yes. mean, I, I think the practice of our faith is a good thing. Um, but I just think we also need to be really aware, um, not in a fearful way, but just really aware of how well, vulnerable we are to sin. This comes to mind. So I remember being um, in the context of a charismatic church and having charismatic friends. And I kept hearing over and over again that we should not even hang out or associate with certain kinds of people because the spirit that's on them might get on you. And I kept hearing this and hearing this and hearing this. And it just occurred to me one day, it's like there's, there's, there's a scripture that says, um, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Like, a, why are we, are, why are we so afraid that, um, the, the world is going to damage us instead of us having impact and transformation upon the world by um, being with people who don't believe well, or, or. Right. And I right. also think like the world will damage us, right? Like we well, will. But, you know, I'm just saying like, look, part of the story for me is looking at the disciples and saying like, look, they were following Jesus. They were growing they loved Jesus. They were seriously and radically committed. And then there came a point where the world just broke them, right? Where they failed, where they betrayed, where they denied, where they deserted. Like, and then that became part of their story, right? Then in that place of failure and brokenness, when they turned back and surrendered to God again, that became, that place of weakness became a place of glory and strength that bore witness to the kind of love that God has for us, right? And this is, I think, when God is saying, like, my strength is not made perfect in your strength. My strength is made purpose perfect in your weakness. And that's just hard to understand um, and hard to sign up for. And I think the reality is what what we're doing is walking by faith, not by our own understanding. So to say, like, there's some, obviously some wisdom as the 
as the parent of two teenage daughters, there's some wisdom about saying like, hey, let's be thoughtful about who we befriend and let's try to have communities that really center and anchor us in in what we're for and in and in who we're called to be. And also to be under no illusions that like we're going to have moments of just deep catastrophe and failure and brokenness and loss and sin and and shame and to know going in that even and especially in those moments we can turn to the Lord and find that we're not abandoned. And it, I mean, I don't know, not for nothing but like we just did a vacation Bible school last week and we were doing it on David. And one of the stories that I really wanted to do was the story of Bathsheba. And people, I mean, there's some very reasonable questions like pastor Kate, like what is the matter with you? And why do you want to tell a bunch of whatever three-year-old through 10 year olds, the story, like, how are you even going to tell that story? And what's that about? And, but I mean, to me, it's really important from the very beginning that we are honestly telling the story, the whole story of scripture and not editing it out because I don't want children and adults in this congregation to know David as a spiritual hero. And like, we don't know what to do with this part of his story. So we just don't tell it. And honestly, it's not just the Bathsheba part of the story. Like the whole end of David's life is just a mess. Like it, it, he had this Zenith and then he like to our eyes really fell. And I think to be able to say like, yeah, he was not there. The testimony of his life is not what an awesome leader he was or what powerful and wonderful things he achieved when he was faithful to God. To me, as I'm older, the story of David's life is what a friend God was to him. What an offensively faithful friend God was to David. And David's superpower, if he had one, his spiritual strength and maturity, if he had any, which I mean, we all do, is that he received that friendship, right? That he accepted the forgiveness that God had for him. And that's what I want our kids to know. I And that's what I want us to know is like, look, we are going to mess up. And when we mess up, we don't mess God up. Um, and, and just sitting with the mystery of that. Um, and so I think, you know, when we talk about what is this, what is this culture that we're about here? I mean, there's just clearly behaviors and practices that lead to flourishing in life and behaviors and practices that don't. And we want to be honest about that, but also be a community where we say, hey, even when we, you know, turn away and and choose the thing that we know that God has has prohibited to us. And, and even when we, you know, I mean, honestly, like even when we murder people, like even Cain got the mark of God's protection. God doesn't throw people away like garbage, even dangerous people, even people who have hurt God's people. And just living with the mystery of that um, is is really important. Um, and so I don't know, I've lost the I've lost the thread now. And, and I would I would add yes, yes, yes. And, and <laughs> which really means but <laughs> no, it means and because all of what you said is true. And we need to have this conversation with people not in our tradition. Yes. Because our tendency 
is to have this kind of conversation just with other Christians and then say, okay, society, okay, country, you need to do this. And the truth is we have very little understanding of other traditions. We have very little understanding of what other people believe and how our understanding might match theirs. And we can say as a society, oh, we all agree on these things. Um, not in terms of we're trying to syncretize doctrine, we're trying to believe the same thing, things, but we're, 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 tr- we're seeking a society where we honor and value the, the flourishing of all people, even people that we deeply disagree with. And that's just going to require a level of, of, of understanding other traditions and being in conversation with them instead of um, imposing our own upon the whole society. And, and I, I don't think we're, we're, we're not even in, in that ballpark. Right. And right I, now it's, it's yeah. just, it's, it's who can get the most power, who can get the most votes and who can impose their, their party, their tradition, their, their thinking upon the rest of the society. Right. Cause I think what we are is supposed to be surrendered to what God is doing. So I don't need power because God has power. Mm. And God certainly doesn't need my power to get God's agenda done, right? And so what we are saying is we are a people who are radically hopeful in the new creation that we are already a part of in Jesus and that Jesus has unleashed on the world and the cross. And that is a stumbling block and foolishness to some, but to us is the glory of God, even though we can't fully perceive it. And and I think, I, I guess just the, the last thing I want to say is, um, when we talk about this idea of a social contract, um, there are people who I really love and honor, who I really love and honor um, just their capacity to love Jesus and their fidelity towards Jesus and the sacrifices that they've made and honestly see them as people that I'm not not fit to untie their sandal, right? And I I hear them talking about the social contract And what I want to validate is I know for them um, what they're saying is there was a time when I experienced the world as safe and there was a time when my experience was that the world saw me and loved me and honored me and there was a time when I felt like my worth and value um, and essential goodness as a human were the default of the culture, right? Like that's how I went through the world, right? And and I want to say like longing for that is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. There's nothing unholy or unfaithful about saying that in this time um, I experienced that kind of abundant life and also given the information and people I had access to, I really thought everyone was also experiencing that, right? Like I know that when people long for a time that they understood to be better, they're not longing for other people to be suffering, right? Like they're just saying in that time, regardless of whether they should or shouldn't have been aware but like they, they were um, caught up in a society that was carefully managed 
to control information. And so, you know, they, they weren't in relationship with people so who were having so a different experience. That, that there was a time when people were just ignorant of the suffering of others, the oppression of others, and assumed that what they were enjoying, everyone was enjoying. I, I do think that that's true. Okay. I'm not saying that that I should have been. I might push back on that. Well, but, but I, do, I do agree that they should I'm not saying, have. I'm not saying that that should have been the case. Yeah, I just think right. it was. Yeah. I think people were living in communities and their their direct experience of who they saw around them was common. And so I think people, when they are looking backwards, they're not saying, I want to get back to a place where I had it good. They're saying, I want to get back to a place where my experience was everyone had it good. Now that wasn't true, yeah, but I, I do think. I time with that when, like, it, let's just say, let's just go back to 1950, whatever. Well, that's the era I'm thinking of. Yeah, yes. Okay. It, it, my, my pushback would be, but you, you are aware that there are whites-only signs. Correct. You are aware that there are lynchings. You are aware that, um, like, you see around you that black people are primarily um, domestic and service workers. Um, I, I, I No, don't. I mean, I, I think... It's true. Again, I just want to be really clear. I am. I do not believe those were the good old days. Right. Oh, but I, I, I don't think but you're I, saying that at all. But I do understand how whiteness works. And you're inside a system. But there's a deception there about what everyone is experiencing. There's right. A, and there's, there's a, a blindness. And there's a story behind every situation yeah. that you yeah. come up against. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so when you hear about a lynching, you also hear, oh, that's very rare, and that would never happen here, and that happens almost and there's a, never. there's a justification right, for there's it. Right, okay. when, you, when yeah. you hear a story about when you see a whites-owned water fountain or you see a whites-owned soda ca- counter, there's also a story that you're given that says, this is why this is not harmful and not a big deal and no one really minds. And the story that you're given is this makes everyone more comfortable. I don't think that story is true, but I do think that people were given that story. Like, I do not think that the majority of people, and I'm not saying it excuses the obvious injustice of that. I'm just saying, like, the devil is good at his job, right? And people don't condone evil because they're evil. People condone evil because they're convinced by people in authority that it's not evil. And I, I can understand why, say, a a Presbyterian who goes to church every Sunday and never hears their pastor mention segregation or civil rights, you know, and, and are told like, these are the only things God cares about. I understand why they believe that person. Right. Which is why I understand Jesus saying like, Hey, you teachers of the law, you have additional uh, like levels of responsibility because you're tying stones around people's necks because when God is unleashing a spirit of justice and change, God's own people are not going to recognize it because they've been inoculated against the gospel instead of taught the gospel, right? So I'm just saying I don't have a longing to go back to those times. Um, But I also understand that people who do are not evil. They just, at the time, not all, 
but most of them were unaware of what the lived experience of a life that was very comfortable for them was for other people. And I'm also saying that all of the institutions that in that time self-represented as the source of decency and goodness and wisdom and culture were saying, hey, this is fine. All of this is fine and all of this is fair. It is as it should be. Correct. And so it just takes a lot of moral courage to question when everybody around you says this is a-okay and it is discomfort that often leads to that questioning and you know my ancestors were not uncomfortable because all of the systems were set up to privilege and make us comfortable so anyway the whole point of all of this is and we were saying this in our conversation with Greg to long for a community, a world where everyone is treated with honor and respect and everyone has a chance to do meaningful work to get what they need for themselves. And everyone is supported by, you know, the the authorities and they're, you know, went to long for a day when everyone has what you once had and at that time wrongly assumed everyone had that longing in itself is not evil what's important it's not evil at all but what's important to recognize is hey in those old days that was a facade and what I want now is to really have the thing that I was told I had before right and what I want now is to say I know I think what would make me flourish but I want to get curious and listen deeply to people who are in pain and who are suffering with the way things are right now. And I want, I care about their flourishing. And so I want to listen to them, tell me the truth about their lived experience, which only they can tell me. And I love them so much that I'm willing to listen to them, even if they're angry, Mm. right? Because I understand that people are allowed to be angry, especially when they're experiencing great injustice. Um, And so I, I just think, to long for, I mean, what we're talking about is shalom, right? Like what we're talking about is a, a community where everyone can flourish. And when my flourishing is tied up in your flourishing, so mutually interdependent flourishing, that's what shalom is. Not peace when we understand peace as the preservation of the status quo and the absence of visible violence to some right and that's not that is a shallow um just sort of paper moon version of what shalom is shalom is really believing that this world that god created is good and it is abundant and there is a way that every person that god and every created thing that god brings into life can have its space and have its place and flourish together. And it is the part of the gospel that we leave out. When we're sharing the gospel, we talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Yes, the ascension of Jesus. Yes, and then we skip to, if you believe, then you go to heaven when you die. And we leave out the part that says that Jesus is returning to create a new heaven and a new earth that everything will be made new there will be you know the the lion will lay down with the lamb and the, uh, the nations will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into printing hooks that 
this world, not not some heavenly destination, but this planet will be made new and that shalom, that flourishing of all things will will happen. Right. And Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. Yes. Right. Like that we who are in Christ are already part of that new creation, which means we operate in that culture, which means we operate not by our own might or our own wisdom or by our own power because no human can get there, obviously, but that we operate in the audacious belief that the Holy Spirit is actually indwelling in us. And so these feeble, foolish, pathetic little acts of faithfulness that we attempt just to take God at his word, that God enters into them like mustard seed, like yeast, and outposts of the kingdom flourish in those spaces and in a way that everybody knows like well we did not do this like the lord made this something more than it intrinsically is that what is in us is not of us because the bible never tells us to build the kingdom of god no we receive the kingdom right we seek the kingdom we seek it we search it we ask and we knock and this is the but problem we don't, build the we don't and so many christians I mean, I think especially, I mean, it's my family, like especially mainline Christians, we're not seeking the kingdom. We're not knocking. We're not seeking. We're not asking. We're just sort of content to do our best with kind of what we feel like we can pull off and God will take everything else by and by instead of saying like, no, let's take our own scriptures seriously and say where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So so we we have a capacity to deeply and hopefully engage with the brokenness of the world, not to build ourselves escape hatches. Well, and seeking implies, just as you said a moment ago, that it's not of us and that we don't totally have it yet. Correct. Right? So we we, we may be in the kingdom, but we're, we still need to seek it, seek, seek it because if the truth is told, there's still the world in us as well. And, and so I, yeah. we are still seeking the kingdom. There's a phrase that really every seminary student gets that's super uh, helpful yes. that we need to just share with people because it's so helpful. And it's just this idea that there's this deep paradox at the center of life in Christ on this side of eternity. And that is um, the already and the not yet that we have these promises of Jesus and some of them we already have. So we already have forgiveness. We already have mercy. We already have belovedness. We already have the righteousness of Christ. And so some of the promises of God we already have, and some of the promises we do not yet have, right? There are, you know, every tear will be dried, the plows no and just, right? Like all, all of these audaciously good promises, we don't fully have those promises yet, but, but the promises that we already have in Jesus are what helps us to trust and to be confident and to find peace in the fact that if God has kept these promises to us, we can yes. trust that God will keep all of God's promises to us. And so, you know, but it's just living in that tension of like, just because we don't have it yet doesn't mean that it's not um, the culmination of this grand story of God's love affair with creation. And so we are the people that are on the 
on the front edge of that. And we're living as, as if we already have some of the promises that we do not yet have. So we're not afraid of death, even though we know that we will die. And we're not afraid of disease. And we're not afraid of poverty, even though we know that the kind of abundant life that God will give us is the kind of abundant life that God gives you know, the sparrow and God gives the lilies of the field, right? That, that is a provision that comes from God, not that we can put in the bank. And so anyway, we're, we're, we're getting preacherly on you. And every time I say, we're not going to talk about much today. You said at the beginning, before we hit record, you said, oh, this is going to be a short podcast today. Yeah, it's a problem. <laughs> hey, we're really glad that you were listening to us. Thank and um, I am excited to share to you that if you want to know more about what God is doing at God's Church, Derida Church, you can go to their, uh, drumroll please, new <laughs> website, Yes, which is, you know, get a pen, pause it and get a pen and write it down because it is Derida Church, D-E-R-I-T-A, Derida Church dot faith life sites all one word faith life sites sites with an s with two s's actually dot com derida church dot faith life sites dot com and um check it out because yolanda made it and it's very good and i'm not gonna lie i'm a little bit jealous go worship with them at 11 o'clock go check out their youtube channel which will show up on their website um listen to the derida church podcast on the Podbeam website and if yeah, yes. Podbean. Podbean. Yes. And if you want to find out more about uh, what God is doing at God's Church, The Grove, you can go to our website, which is just thegrovecharlotte.org. Look for the tree. You can check out our YouTube channel and our podcast, which is also The Grove Church Podcast and uh, The Grove Church Charlotte. News. Yeah, I really actually don't even know our stuff. Look for the tree. And uh, you can worship with us at 10 a.m. We have a really amazing guest preacher this week, so you should come out. He told me not to hype him up, so I'm not going to hype him up by name, but it's going to be a great, great worship service. So come and join us and listen to the podcast. And thanks for listening. We will talk to you in two weeks after vacation. Thank you.